Hi, my name is Matt McGee. I get to serve as the pastor here at Oak Grove. A lot of times I say one of the pastors. I serve with a, a team of elders, other brothers in the Lord that are uh, godly men who are also very much shepherds, not like a board of elders that just make decisions, but these, these men are in the lives, uh, lives of people um, in, the, uh, in the throes of ministry. And so uh, I have the privilege of being able to do this for full time, you know, and they've got other day jobs, but you might think of them as pastors with day jobs, you know, so um, very much part of a team. So uh, we're glad you're here. So uh, it's, 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 uh, it's good to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. I'll tell you, we're not, uh, we're not really here to talk about anything new this morning, right? We're, we're, we're maybe dusting off old truths, right? We're not here to, to, uh, to, 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 to speak in a way that tries to conjure up something that you've never heard before unless you've never heard uh, the simple truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you'll hear it again and again and that your hearts will be enlarged as the psalmist says. So um, you, you, you may remember an important question that was asked of a guy named Adam in the Garden of Eden early on in, uh, in the history of the Bible. If you're not familiar with the story, uh, God created Adam and Eve. Adam, he created out of the dust of the ground and breathed life into him. And, and then uh, after some time, after not finding a, a helper suitable for him, he, he put Adam to sleep. And, and from Adam's rib, he fashioned Eve and, and, and instituted marriage uh, right then and there. And, uh, and then he, he put them in this garden, a beautiful garden of Eden, perfect garden. If there was a place on earth that you would want to be, it would be there. And they were placed right in the, the Garden of Eden. And they were given so much freedom, except you may have heard before that God told them there's one thing that they can't do, eat of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else is fair game. Everything else, not just fair game, but created for them to enjoy, created for, for you to enjoy, for me to enjoy. And they disobeyed God's one command. They disobeyed that, that one command. And you know how it feels. I'm just going to make massive assumptions this morning, okay? Uh, there are far less assumptions than you might think, but we're going to just go with assumptions. I'm just going to make massive assumptions about you this morning. Ready? You know what it's like to do something wrong. You're like, right? You know what it's like to do something wrong and feel guilty for it. I know, super encouraging, like right out of the gates, right? Uh, we do. We do. All of us. All of us. Now, I was really good at it as a kid, right? I'm over that now. I'm not as good at doing wrong things anymore. But when I was a kid, I was really good at it. That was a joke, by the way. Uh, some of you aren't sure how full of myself I am, but uh, not, not that full. Um, when I was a kid, I was really good uh, because I was curious. Uh, and, and so I was curious how things worked. I was curious. Uh, like I'd accidentally, and this part's true, like accidentally step over the line. P plenty of other times I've intentionally stepped over the line. Sometimes I accidentally step over the line, and then I realize, oh, I didn't get caught. So I would think, oh, I bet I could go further. So that, right, that's where it kind of went astray. And then what I like, I'd lie about it like nobody's business, right? When, when we got married, Sherilyn and I got married 17 and a half years ago, and uh, not long, I don't know if we were married or engaged at the time, but one time she said to me, I never know if you're joking or being sarcastic, which I took as an incredible compliment, right? I mean, I was like, oh, thank you. My performance is worthy. Now, you know how men and women speak different languages, right? She was coming at it from a totally different perspective, you know, right? And so I've learned one or two things in 17 years. Um, and I don't even know where I was going with that. But, uh, oh, that's right. I was good at lying, basically. That's basically it, right? I was really good at lying. So I knew, but then I feel guilty for it. 
You know, and sometimes I hear a lot of like people talking about feeling guilty and things like these days. And because we want, we don't like to see people hurting. Most people don't like to see people hurting. We try to encourage people, you know, people feel guilty for doing something. And then we say, oh, you don't need to feel guilty. It's okay. Right. Uh, except what I have found in, uh, in all of my years, whatever that means to you, depending on how old you are, is that usually, usually when people feel guilty, it's for one reason. Usually they're guilty. Like I would feel guilty for lying. You know why? I lied. Well, Adam felt guilty. You know why? Well, he was guilty. He was guilty. And so all of a sudden he, he hears God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I just love that picture. Beautiful garden, perfect garden. Adam hears God walking in, in the cool of the day. And what does every good guilty person do? What does every good guilty person do? Hide, try to cover it up, run away, right? We just try to get out of the sight of the person that is going to get on our case, that's going to call us out for it. And that's what they did. They, they hid. And Genesis 3 tells us, <clears throat> and Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, what I want you to picture is this fellowship. We don't always use the word fellowship. So I want you to think of this friendship. It wasn't a friendship of equals. Some of you have relationships with someone that, that is definitely um, superior to you. Maybe it's a job title. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a senior in your family that you highly respect. But there's, there's a friendship there, right? There's a, there can be a really close relationship with still an understanding of authority. Uh, still an understanding of he's in charge or she's in charge and I'm not. Well, this was Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day, enjoying the fellowship, the friendship, the relationship with the God who made them. And in the cool of the day, he hears God walking in the garden and the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Now that's almost laughable. Right? I've said this before. I didn't come up with it. But it's like when you play hide-and-go-seek hide and with your kiddos in the living room or something like that. Now, what do they do? They hide under like something that doesn't have a wall, like legs, like a table. Right? And they're like, they can't see me here. And you're just like, hey, where are you? Where are you? Right? Well, that's exactly what Adam, I mean, the Lord asked Adam. Where are you? I'm still here. He said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who, who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, if you're a parent or even if you've been a babysitter as a teenager, you've asked a question that you clearly know the answer to. Right? Some people say, don't ask a question that you don't already know the answer to. Well, this is the Lord here. Just stringing them along for the purpose of teaching something. Well, who told you you were naked? The question that God asked Adam introduces to, to you and to me what may be the best three-word summary of the Bible. In the Bible. The best three-word summary of the Bible in the Bible, and that's the question, where are you? 
ask you that question this morning. Where are you? Where are you in life? Where are you in God's story that we see throughout the whole Bible? You see, the rest of the Bible, the whole rest of the Bible, and there are a lot of pages in the Bible, uh, depending on the kind of Bible that you're holding, same number of you know chapters and verses and books and all that kind of stuff and in the Old Testament through the New Testament, but, but about 1,400 pages, 1,500 pages in pretty small type. That's a lot of storyline that happens in the Bible. And and the whole rest of the Bible unfolds that story of God's relentless pursuit of humanity, to restore humanity. Now, let's not get the wrong idea out of the gates. This is not a picture of a lonely God looking for his friend because he's feeling alone because he can't find him. Let's be clear. God's pursuit of humanity is a pursuit to restore to us the good for which he created us and that we separated ourselves from. God's pursuit of humanity in the Bible is God's pursuit for the good of humanity that we have separated ourselves from. And that is relationship, unhindered, unbroken communion with God, with one another and his creation. That's what you see unfolding in the whole rest of the, 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 the Bible. Anytime you take a big summary like that, you can be like, well, I thought it was about this and this and this. Well, all those things are probably true, but they're all enfolded within God's original purpose. There's no plan B here, by the way. Adam and Eve, now they didn't like mess up God's plan, right? From before the foundation of the world, God knew, God ordained everything that was going to be happening. And, and so here God is continuing this grand story of restoring our communion with him. And it's for your good. It's for your good to be restored with God, to be able to walk with God, to be able to know God as he is. Not how you understand God in your mind, uninformed or even partially informed, by the word of God, but fully informed by every letter of every verse of every chapter of every book of this word of God. We need to be informed about who God is and it's good for us because God is good, because God is great. God is wonderful. And he shows himself to be perfect in every respect. He's perfect. He's good. He's kind and he's holy. And because he's holy, he can't just look the other way and pretend like you and I do, like, like good teammates playing along with our kids that are hiding or our grandkids in really obvious places. You know, we just play along and then, and then we let them suffer. Oh, there you are. That's so funny. You know, and we slap a knee and we just go on with life and they think they've got us. God, God doesn't just overlook everything. No, he's got to go right down through the middle of it. And so that's what we see unfolding in God's word. He has a a plan for how this restoration will take place. His plans have never changed. His plans have never been thwarted. It was his original. It was his final goal. And God doesn't ever plan something that he is not capable of fulfilling. God doesn't ever plan something that he doesn't have every intention of completing perfectly. Because he's perfect. And, and, and as we've already established, we're not. Now, I want to ask you to think of something this morning. There's lots of good news this morning. Okay, so a couple things are going to be challenging to you, and it's okay. I want you to think of some kind of 
area where you've missed the mark in your life, some time that you've hurt someone, some time that you've done something that no, maybe even today nobody else even knows about. Okay? I'm not going to have you all come up here and walk across stage and like announce it or anything like that. So it's okay. But I want you to have something concrete in mind because this really matters. This really matters for what you do this afternoon. This really matters for what you do tomorrow. So have something in mind. The death, death and resurrection of Jesus is really Genesis to Revelation. It's the climax of the story of good news. But... It's the, because it's the peak of the story, or while it's the peak of the story, it's not really what the whole story is about, right? It's the climax of God overcoming every enemy, including you and me. Every power of the evil forces, he overcomes them all. He has victory over all. Why? Guess what? Jesus is alive. He rose from the grave. You're not here coming to find out. Well, let's go to church this morning and find out if he rose from the grave. Unless you're really trying to get your kiddos to pay attention today. In which case, kudos to you. <laughs> Maybe. But not. Yeah, okay. Jesus' resurrection, and here's our main point this morning, is the proof of victory that unites believers to God in Christ. Jesus' resurrection is the proof of victory that unites believers to Christ. In 1 Peter, Peter's writing to this group of, of first century Christians who are being persecuted. I mean, they are undergoing some difficult challenges. And uh, when we think of persecution, a lot of times we think of things like, uh, I had a friend that won't talk to me anymore because I'm a Christian. Now that's part of it. Uh, but but this, would, this would go to the nth degree where, where they were marginalized. It affected them economically. It affected their social status in ways that we just really don't even, ha aren't even really able to comprehend fully this morning. Because we are so blessed to this date to live in this nation where, for now, we have freedom for religion. It's a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful gift. And we need to take full advantage of it. But we also need to hear this message to those who are being persecuted because I don't think we're far behind. And so he's writing to this group of believers who are being persecuted, and he's saying a lot of things in this letter. We're just going to look at a few verses in it this morning. And one of the things he's encouraging them to do is focusing on living to honor Christ as Lord. He says that in chapter 3, verse 15, so that they are ready to stand strong with one another not on their own, you know, hey, everybody, good luck, go to your own house and hope you make it through the night. No, 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 no. Be a united group of people, a united body of Christ that stands together so that together we're more able to withstand the temptation of, of running away from that which is very scary, very painful in persecution. When you're persecuted, when you're mocked, even killed for trying to live your life well, we're not talking about these stories of people who in the name of Jesus do things that are very contrary to Jesus. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Christianity, there have been those who've, who've gone out and done horrific things. That's not what we're talking about. No. We're talking about people who were learning what it meant to love their neighbor as they learned how to grow in their love for God. They're talking about people who were learning how to serve each other as this new, uh, this newfound faith in Christ, the risen one, who only decades earlier rose from the grave. 
They're learning to love one another sacrificially. I mean, these are good, good things that God calls us to and, and equips us to be able to do. And that's when persecution comes. And the persecutors will lie about what you're doing. They'll lie about why they're persecuting you. And so he wants to encourage them. Honor Christ as Lord so that you're ready to stand strong. And what he, what he refers them to here is this. He goes right back to the heart of the gospel. And I love this. He doesn't coddle them. He doesn't pat them on the hand. He goes right back to the central truth of the gospel, which is this. Jesus suffered for doing good, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring believers to God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sin. He says also suffered. In other words, you're suffering too. Christ also suffered. The one that you're living for knows what you're enduring. He knows what you're going through and more. The righteous for the unrighteous. That, the purpose statement, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's one of the, one of the simplest, richest summaries of the meaning of the cross of Jesus. Five words that highlight or punctuate the contrast that we have to understand. We're not in Christ because we're nice people. I mean, you all look pretty nice this morning. You look pretty good. You look pretty or handsome or whatever you prefer for this morning. You look good. Some of you are really taking that out. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Five words. Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus is the righteous one. He's the one who's, who's, who's perfect. He's good in every way. And he suffered for those who are the exact opposite. He was put to death in the flesh and he was made alive in the spirit. This is what people who are much smarter than I am call the great exchange. And that's where Christ's righteousness is exchanged for our unrighteousness. In other words, Christ's per- perfect life. And this is not just never sinning. This is never sinning, but also doing everything perfectly right. Christ's perfection is transferred to your account. And every sin, the one I asked you to think about, multiplied times your days and years, transferred over to Christ's account. And there he hung on the cross, guilty, Because he absorbed your punishment and my punishment. Not because God's mean, but because, as I said earlier, because God is holy. Jesus died to reconcile believers to God. Now, do you have a relationship that's ever struggled? A relationship where you think, uh, boy, this is really going the wrong way. Maybe you've done something to them. Maybe they've done something to you. You know what it's like to not be reconciled in a relationship. I mean, it's hard. It's painful. And what Jesus did is he, he, was, he died in order that you and I might be reconciled to him. Right? This is while we were his enemies, Romans tells us. He absorbed the cost for you and me so that we can be reconciled. Well, how are we reconciled? Just like by acknowledging our sin. I mean, you have to believe it, right? I mean, this is not about like lip service. Like God's smarter than that. 
you know, remember, he asked Adam and Eve in the garden, where are you? He wasn't like really wondering where they're at. So if we're just like, oh, I'll say the right words and then I'll be good and go to heaven. No, no, you're not going to trick the almighty God who made you and by the way, knows exactly how you think. You have to believe it. We confess our wrong. We acknowledge, understand that he's perfect and that he gave himself for us. And the Bible says on that admission, on that profession, on that faith, you'll be made right with God. You're reconciled with God. Just like that. The fancy word is justified. You'll be justified with God. And then we get to spend the rest of our lives learning how to walk with him, learning how to follow him. And so Jesus' resurrection creates a clean conscience for the one who trusts him. When you acknowledge that you're a sinner and when you trust that he is the only way for your salvation, you have a clean conscience. Now, Peter uses the, the, the example of baptism here. And uh, we could spend a long, long time on these next two verses alone. Okay, so we're going to see that it's an example. I'm going to make a couple comments to bring some clarity, and then we're going to keep moving. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him. Whew, that's a mouthful. That's a mouthful. Baptism is the picture. Baptism, being, being immersed in water, is not the thing that actually saves you. It's the belief associated with baptism, which is the profession of faith. That's what, uh, that's what saves. And that's what brings a good conscience, because we're just honest about life. God, I'm imperfect. I'm a sinner. You're not. <laughs> you came and you gave your life for people like me? That's amazing. I'll take you up on that. I repent means I'm just turning from my own ways and now I want to follow you. When our kids were younger and we would discipline them and we'd have these fun conversations in the bathroom, we had a mirror on our door. And so um, part of our little process of helping them understand that discipline is training because we love them and God disciplines us because he loves us. And so he trains us in life too. We would have our kids walk, take a couple steps toward the mirror and we would just tell them as you're walking toward the mirror, this is like you walking toward your own sin. When you're living for yourself, you're just walking after your own ways, you're just walking toward yourself, trying to fulfill your own desires. But when you repent, you turn away from yourself and turn away from the mirror and you come walk toward, we'd have them walk toward us, but we would just talk about the fact that we're walking away from ourselves and turning toward Christ and walking toward Christ for the rest of our lives. Just a simple, uh, not complete way, but a simple way to try to help them visualize what happens when we, when we repent and we walk in faith, when we trust the Lord. So picture, baptism here is pictured as not something that's like, you're not taking a bath. You're not taking a bath. We have this uh, water hammer in our pipes right now. And uh, we, you know, it's like before we go to the doctor, we like Dr. Google, right? Doctor. And we, we look up what's, what might be going on and what it's called. And so we did this thing last night to turn it off, you know, draining our pipes and all this kind of stuff. And then uh, it was time for one of ours to take a, a a bathroom shower last night, and um, we just hadn't let the water run long enough, but it took longer than I thought to get some of the impurities out of the water until the water was actually clean again, you know? Um, so sometimes, like, if you're in a river, you're like, I feel like I'm dirtier than when I got in. Well, you probably are, and he probably was. But all of that to say this, we're not just trying to get cleansed. It's not like filling up a bathtub and washing yourself off and saying, oh, there, there was baptism. 
No, baptism is, is, is a symbolic gesture, a symbolic uh, symbol or sign that I'm saying, I am dying to myself. Uh, I'm no longer walking toward that picture of me in the mirror. I'm dying to myself and I'm made alive in Christ. I've turned from walking to myself and now I'm walking away from myself. But it's not my own power. It's the power of God that raised Christ from the dead. And there are wonderful promises that come with that. One of my favorites, Psalm 32, the psalmist said, oh, how blessed. I like to say, oh, how happy in Jesus is the one whose transgression or sin is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Similar to Hebrews 10, which says, let us, meaning those who believe, let us, those who believe, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Do you see that word? Do you hear that word? Evil conscience. When we're in ourselves, when we're walking toward ourselves in that proverbial mirror, it's evil in us. Those who have a clean conscience are hidden in God with Christ or hidden with Christ in God. This is what Jesus's victory means when he rose from the dead. Jesus paid the full penalty for your sin. The moment he died, the moment his spirit left him, the full penalty for your sin was paid. Jesus didn't suffer in hell for three days. The Bible, even this passage talks about Jesus descending, but it's his spirit that was descended to preach to those other spirits that he had claimed victory over. Victory in Christ means that you are hidden in him. I remember uh, in the, in, when I was in middle school, in the mid-80s, you're welcome. Oh, I thought more of you were going to be offended by that. I was kind of hoping. No, still no. Okay, all right. I'll, I'll try to make it harder. Um, I remember in the mid-80s, the Chicago Bears. Where's Frankie? Where's Frankie? Chicago Bears. There he is. There he is. The Chicago Bears uh, had uh, um, Walter Payton. And you remember who else? The fridge. Anybody know his real name? William Perry. William the Refrigerator Perry, right? And I mean, this was just like a turning point for football. It was the first team, I believe, the first team that kind of decided like in a Super Bowl, like, uh, hey, let's give the big guy the ball. I mean, like, let's just, I don't, we don't even have to line it. Okay, we need a certain number of linemen on, on, the, on the ball, right, right. But aside from that, we just give them the ball and it's, it's game over, right? Well, before they did that, Perry would line up, right, and and then Peyton would get the ball. And what would happen? Just, just the fridge would just like mow people down, right? I mean, sometimes running backs have to get pretty good at where to find the hole. You know, you're looking at the two hole or the four hole. And, you know, and, and if your blockers, your tackles do what's right, then, then you've got an opening. Or maybe you dash back for another opening, which Walter Peyton was pretty good at doing. But when he lined up behind the fridge, Perry, Walter Perry, he just went right behind him. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't lightning fast, but the hole was, was open, right? And he'd just get the ball and just tuck in behind him, right? I think when you look at those, you got all these like fancy stat things now too, right? All of the, the graphics that go over the screen. It, it was like almost a square picture back then and kind of grainy and all that kind of stuff. But I think if you look at the really slow uh, motion with the statistics in it, there are pictures of like Walter Payton, going behind the fridge and just like doing some kind of a dance as he kind of spun through the line, stopping for a cup of coffee as he walked through the line because it was just like he had all day. He could do whatever he wanted, right? I mean, he was, you might say he was in Walter, the refrigerator, Perry, 
right? I know it's going a little far, but you might say he was hidden in the fridge. He was hidden in him. You and I are hidden in Christ. I grew up in Air Force Brat, and my dad, uh, I would, you know, spend a, quite a bit of time at the base, and um, a lot of times I knew the places to go. But unless I was with my dad, I couldn't get in sometimes. Certain places civilians could go, right? Uh, but but uh, certain places, a lot of places, unless I was with my dad, I couldn't get in. So this isn't just about if you know the right place to go. This isn't like, oh, I know the place to go. You go to church. No, 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 no. Oh, this isn't about I know the right person to talk to. No, 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 no. The right person you need to be in and with, and they need to take you. And that's Jesus who takes you to reconcile you with God the Father. When you turn from yourself and you turn to him, he takes you in. Being hidden in Christ is all the identity you need. Everything in this world wants to point you a million different directions. All you need, friend, brother, sister, friend, is to be in Christ. Pastor Matt, it can't be that simple. Sometimes the hardest thing to do really is that simple, if you're willing. If you're willing. It's like the difference between Batman and Spider-Man, right? Batman's this wealthy guy with all these amazing gadgets, and he goes to fight evil, right? Good guy, all all this money, all these cool toys, and he goes to fight evil. Spider-Man, on the other hand, just a normal dude until all of a sudden he wasn't. Why? Well, because he got bit by this radioactive spider. And then what happened? What was in the spider got into him, and it transformed him, and now he was new. He was different. He was sort of like remade, and now he had power that came from within to work out of him because what had happened to him, something on the outside of him got into him, and he became a new person, a new man, a new Spider-Man. Every analogy breaks down, this one too, But the Spirit of God has to get in you. And when he does, through repentance and faith and trusting Jesus alone, you're a new person. You're a new creation. Now able to do things that you weren't able to do before. So what? Why does all of this matter? I mean, it's not an exaggeration to say this is the best news that you can hear. Every church that's faithful to Jesus is preaching a message, something similar to this, on this day and other days throughout the year. Why? Because we don't try to reinvent the only thing that works, the only message that is true, and that is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And when we grow in humility, that's our true thought. I'm the worst one. How could he save me? I mean, I know how he could save them because they clearly got something going on. (laughs) No. No, the right attitude that takes you from being outside of Christ to in Christ is, I'm the worst one. I can't believe it, that he would save me. Colossians, the Apostle Paul calls this Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. So I want to ask you again this morning, where are you? 
Where are you? Where are you? Are you in Christ? Or outside of Christ? Paul goes on, or I'm sorry, Peter goes on, and I'm not going to talk much about these, but I just want to read them because I need you to hear, or we need to hear, what he's driving after. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. When you have a clean conscience, you can go before the throne of God in all of his grace to find mercy and grace to help you in your time of need because you're no longer focused on sin. You've set sin aside. It doesn't mean you don't ever still struggle with sin, but but in the in the video reel of your life, you've set it aside. You've walked away from it. And now you're focused on suffering well. You welcome suffering. You embrace suffering. Why? Because you know that this life is just a shadow of what is to come. It's just pointing forward to eternity where we have hope of eternal life without suffering, without struggle, all of eternity, enjoying all of God, all of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity. Friend, this is what God calls us to. This is why we need to preach this to ourselves time and again and again. Where are you? If you're not in Christ, I mean, I would implore you, I would beg you, I would come and I wouldn't care if I was embarrassed. I mean, I would care kind of if you were embarrassed, but, but really not, because I would do almost anything to see one person in this room come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Paul said, if I could give up my salvation in order that these, these brothers, these, these old Jewish friends should be saved, I'd do that if it were possible, but we know it's not. So I just need to ask you to consider, where are you? If the Lord is asking you that, where are you? They say, I'm still struggling, Lord, but I'm in Christ. Well, then praise God. Amen. Where are you? I'm still hiding. I'm still hiding. Oh, no. You know how to disguise hiding. But if you're still hiding, you're not at peace. If you're still hiding... It may be because your conscience isn't clean. Because you're guilty. Everyone who's guilty feels guilty. But Jesus came not just to pat you on the hand, but to to do what the only perfect one could do, to alleviate that guilt by paying the cost. And I pray that you trust him this morning. I pray that if, if you're a Christian that has been maybe going through the motions, I pray that this would invigorate your soul, invigorate your love for Jesus. This isn't about how often you come to church. It's about, it's about re, re-enlivening a passion in you to arm yourselves with Christ's way of thinking so that you cease a little bit more every day from sin.